I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. And this week, we are continuing our one-off conversations by talking about human creativity. We share a lot with the other sentient beings on this planet, human or otherwise. Love, hunger, death, joy, family, jealousy, rage. But there's one thing we do that other species, for whatever reason, don't. We innovate. We create, and we do so in a symbiotic way with other humans, building and improving on one another's ideas until suddenly we've all got a personal computer in our back pockets. Crows may be able to improvise tools, but they haven't improvised an iPhone yet. So what's at the heart of this human creativity? Where does it come from? How does it work? And how can we get better at harnessing our own ingenuity? Here to talk about it are Anthony Brandt and David Eagleman, the authors of The Runaway Species, How Human Creativity Remakes the World. So first of all, thanks for being here. And would you mind starting off by identifying yourselves for us and PR style? Yes, I am David Eagleman. I'm a neuroscientist. I'm Anthony Brandt. I'm a composer. So let's start off with the big question, which is the heart of the book, um, down to the title, what is it about human creativity that sets our species apart from the rest? Well, that's actually what inspired us to write this book because we were so surprised when you look around at the world that other animals are doing exactly what they've done for millions of years, but there's one species that is going off on this trajectory that is totally different than everyone else. So when you fly over a city, it becomes totally clear when you look down from the airplane that one species has built up this uh you know, motherboard of civilizations from from the dust. And the question is, what is what is it that's different about the human brain? So um, essentially, it has to do with two things very quickly, which is that when the cortex, the outer part of the brain expanded, uh, we got a much larger prefrontal cortex, which is the part of your brain that allows you to simulate what ifs. And also, we got a lot more space in between uh, the parts of the brain that sense and the parts that do. So uh, we have the capacity to take in information and chew on it and maybe make a response, but mash ideas together. 
And between those uh, little tweaks in our genetics and the shape of our cortex, we ended up being a runaway species. So where did this extra space come from? Why is it that we have all that, I guess, extra gray matter and extra time to think about how we're going to react to sensations? Uh, Well, this is a great question that evolutionary biologists ask. There's unfortunately no way to ever know why something happened evolutionarily, but somehow those tweaks in the genes ended up leading to a single species that originally took up a very small area in Africa to now being a species that owns every corner of the planet. Um, So we don't know why it happened. We just know that it was a successful tweak. Right. And we see the traces of that success like everywhere. So speaking of success, you both come from radically different fields, and yet you have successfully collaborated with each other on a book about human creativity. How did a composer and a neuroscientist end up writing a book together? We had this one uh, lunch conversation, which ended up going on for three hours, where we just uh, we were working on a project together. We started talking about creativity in general, and we were surprised and excited to see that our overlaps uh, were almost 100% on how we looked at the su- subject matter. And I think deep down we felt that creativity was a story that was most beautifully told by putting the arts and the sciences alongside each other. And so that was a fundamental uh, strategy and approach and conviction that we had from the very beginning that we would not have the arts over on one corner and science over on the other, but we would really wed them together. Yeah, one thing that's so interesting about your collaboration is that you're just doing that in the writing of it, too, you know, Mm -hmm. a composer and a neuroscientist. And also um, it speaks to one of the really neat aspects of the book, which is sort of killing the myth of the lone genius. Oh, yeah. So we argue very strongly about the myth because one of the fundamental things is that creativity doesn't come on out of the thin air. It, it builds on the storehouse of raw materials of our experiences. And the more you're embedded in a rich environment and the more also you're playing this wonderful cerebral ping pong ball with the people around you, the more you're going to nurture and cultivate ideas. And that's why places like turn of the 20th century Paris and Florence in the Renaissance and Silicon Valley now are such magnets for creative minds because they need to be embedded in places in which people are asking similar questions questions and posing similar problems. Right, right. There are all these examples that you cite of people who I guess do that thing where they just like pull ideas from various different places. You talk a little bit about Picasso, for instance, and the iconic painting Les Demoiselles d'Avignon and how, you know, all of the ideas for that were around, but he was really the only one that put them together. And, and you know, not only that, but Picasso was n- notorious in a way. He lived when he was young in a garret alongside a whole bunch of other painters' studios, and he, he was notorious for going and seeing what everybody else was doing and appropriating it and doing it himself and, you know, finding out how the technique from this one person mixed with the one from this other person could, y- you know, yield something even more bold. And... Um, creativity is a process of extrapolation and derivation, and we are all pulling away from each other to different distances, and uh, that is a healthy, normal, vibrant part of it, and almost no new, great new ideas are ever conceived of in an intellectual desert. 
Do other species do anything similar, like as far as as copying or mimicking? And is there a difference? Uh, There's a claim that octopi can watch one another. And if you put one octopus through a test or he gets to open some jar with his tentacles and then another octopus is watching that, he will be able to do the task faster just by observation. The difference is... um, what our species is up to somehow is just even one notch above that, which is we learn from observation and we change things. We tweak it. We think of, okay, well, I saw my friend the octopus doing that, but <laughs> I could do it even better if I did it this other way. And um, so it's it's more than mimicry, but actually taking in ideas from our environment and bending and breaking and blending them into new versions. Yeah, there are those three Bs, um, which you identify in the book as the three main ways that human creativity operate. What's the difference between those three? So bending is like a theme in variations. You start with some source and you reproduce it, but with something novel about it. You've twisted out of shape. You transform it in some way. Um, all you have to do is think about you know every variety of kitchen knife uh, to get an idea of what bending is. Breaking, you take something whole and you take it apart and you make something new using some or all of the pieces. And in blending, you take two more or more ideas and you merge them together. So you think about all those superheroes like Spider-Man and Ant-Man. Those are all blends of taking, you know, some uh, creature from nature and blending it with a human being. Can you really separate out all three of these like hugely intertwined ways of thinking. Are there examples that are just like a mess of the three? How do you isolate them? They're all, almost all creativity is the mixing together of all these three. Um, So, you know, one of the things is when, when, uh, let's say you make a minotaur uh, with a half man, half bull, well, you had to do breaking, you had to have half of the man and half of the bull in order to be able to do the blend. So in the human mind, it's not that those are really uh, separate streams and you do one of them or you do the other, they're all mixing together. But what we felt is that, especially if you want to teach creativity and you want to make it something that's actionable and clear and not mysterious and mythical, that these three strategies basically inform pretty much how all new ideas evolve. And this is essentially, the argument we make is that this is the basic software that's running under the hood in the brain. And so um, it's sort of like these are three different axes and you can be anywhere in the space, Mm. but it's very different than what computers do where they take in zeros and ones and they store that for years and you can pull up a file later and the photograph looks exactly the way you took it. But mm. with the human brain, it's um, everything gets uh, changed with time and experience and other inputs. And that is the little tweak, whether accidental or not, that makes us so terribly creative. One thing you mentioned is that a lot of this is under the hood of the brain, so to speak. It's invisible and we don't really see it very often. You know, it's like buried in our neurons or tucked away behind building walls. This creativity is really sort of hidden in the very structure of of human society. How do Mm -hmm. you tease that out? So one of our arguments in the book is that one of the great gifts the arts give us is overt creativity. And a lot of the stuff that's hidden both within the recesses of our thoughts and in the walls of buildings and inside of iPhones... All of that is actually being broadcast by the arts. And so one, one of the parents 
stories uh, that I particularly like is we we put a, a cubist painting of Picasso in which he's shattered uh, what's normally a continuous visual plane into this mosaic of different perspectives. And we put that alongside uh, the birth of the modern cell phone where mobile phones originally started with one broadcast tower over an entire large area and that has a, had a very limited number of frequencies and so only a few dozen people could be on the phone at the same time and it just was not going to ever be scalable uh, that way and engineers at Bell Labs came up with the idea of breaking that larger area into smaller cells and giving each one their own tower and when a handoff was created so you could go from one cell to the other and not drop the call that's how modern mobile phones were were created and our argument is that the same cognitive tool that Picasso used to create cubism was what the Bell Lab engineers used to create the cells of cell phones. Right. And both of those concepts are are so ubiquitous now, cell phones in particular, that like, I mean, I didn't even know that that was where the cell part of cell phone came from. Right. And that's what we call covert creativity, where it's it's surrounding us, we're embedded in it, and yet we have no idea of all of the monumentally creative decisions that help make it the way that it is. Yeah, we're sitting in an NPR studio right now, and I'm just looking around the room, and it's full of electronics and gear and buttons and sliders. I don't have any idea what, <laughs> what most of this stuff does. But every single piece of this is the kind of thing that only the human species makes, mm. And uh, but yes, the point is that we walk into the room and we just sit down and and magically you're hearing our voice and uh, and we're hearing yours and we don't know how how any of this works. And that's the strange part is when you're born into this world, you just take everything that exists as, as background radiation and all the creativity that goes into that is hard to see. And so from the creator's side, then, from the person who wants to become more creative or, I guess, take advantage of all of these different tools, what's the next step? What are the ways of thinking about the world or of creativity that, that would make us better creators? So we point to a few things um, as being what we feel totally essential. One is, you know, culture is there to give us a storehouse of raw materials. And the idea that we're only you know tweaking the imperfect really doesn't capture the fact that a lot of the times what we're doing is we're remodeling the things we love and we show the love that we have for what has already happened by taking its dna and turning it into something new and so we say you know creativity is propelled when you treat the past as treasured but not untouchable and anything can belong on the workshop table to turn into the next new thing the second is it's really important to proliferate options because your brains, uh, all of our brains are built for efficiency. They're very streamlined. And we get ready answers, which are sort of the first thing that comes to mind, but often those are the most ordinary ones. And so by proliferating options, you force yourself off of that path of least resistance and you try out things you wouldn't have necessarily arrived at at first. And then on top of that, it's very hard to know what's going to land with the public and how far to go away from the familiar. And so we've observed that, you know, the greatest creative minds typically cover a whole spectrum of ideas, some of which stay closer to what we know and live with and others of which fly farther and farther and farther. And so someone like Edison is tweaking Alexander Graham Bell's telephone. He's really improving the light bulb, which was invented by someone else. And then he's also imagining underwater cities with uh, solar power. And uh, you, you look at 
somebody like da Vinci is exactly the same thing. He's fixing a practical problem with a lock, and he's also inventing a parachute that no one is even going to need because no one flies yet for 200 years. Right, right. It's like nothing is safe from their creativity. And we sometimes hold that against artists and inventors, and we feel they're provocateurs or enfants terribles, but they're really doing what all of us do all the time with the world around us. And, you know, maybe they push hard on it, uh, but, but that's what you do. And if you sit around just trying to wait for an idea to hit you, you're not likely to be as productive as if you're constantly absorbing the world. Sometimes ideas don't land, though, and they either venture too far off into the unknown or don't find an audience or anything. So what happens when an idea fails? So that happens all the time. Um, one example we use is with the, the language Esperanto, which was a really terrific idea to have a universal language. There were lots of people who supported it. Um, and it had you know millions of speakers at one point. But it turns out that many ideas are just too, just slightly too far a leap to ask of the public. Um, when I was in elementary school, they were teaching us the standard measurement system alongside the metric system. And the idea was to transition everyone over. And then at some point, they just got dropped because I guess they just, the legislators decided that it was just too big a leap for Americans to be asked to change their measurement system over to metric. So anyway, there are things that fail all the time. And uh, I live in Silicon Valley. And... You know, the statistic is something like nine out of ten startups fail, and it's really hard if you're a, if you're starting a startup to face that kind of statistic. But that's the realistic nature about this this tension that we all live in between novelty and familiarity. Um, this is one of the reasons uh, that there are skewmorphs, which are the digital icons that represent physical objects. So, um, you know, like the save button is a little floppy disk. Um, and, uh, you know, when you make a phone call on your cell phone, you press the button that looks like a handset from a physical phone. Uh, you know, these things haven't been used for a very long time now. But, but the reason they exist still in the digital world is just testament to the fact that we like things that have a familiarity to them. Finding that right sweet spot is the reason that lots of really good ideas fail, um, because they're just a little too far. And, and of course, lots of other ideas fail because they're just a little bit too close. And sometimes, I guess, doing that involves going really far out into the future, just flipping through. There are pictures of mm-hmm. really, really crazy cars, for example. And I have to wonder, like, who, who is ever going to drive these cars? Why, why even bother coming up with something this wild? You know, I would just say when, when people watched Star Trek back in the 70s or 80s, uh, one of the things Star Trek had was video conferencing where, you know, the person in the other <laughs> ship would pop up on the screen. And I think that was the feeling, too. Like, it's so wacky. But but it's so <laughs> trivial now that we do that every day. And I watch around my office when people are using this. And uh, I just think, God, it, it's it's not even been that long that we've been in the world and we just see these massive changes that seem like they were crazy. I mean, when I was a kid uh, and... You know, if you wanted to call someone on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, it was a big deal. And you did that from your landline. And now it's so trivial. You use WhatsApp or you use whatever you want. You use your cell phone, you call. So anyway, the point is that the world is moving quickly and it's moving more quickly now than ever before. So it's, uh, it's, it's impossible really to ever say which things are too wacky and which things are, are not going to stick. <laughs> 
There are tons of images of some wild ideas that didn't stick or perhaps haven't stuck yet on our episode page, pulled from the very colorful pages of The Runaway Species. If you've ever wondered what an Alexander McQueen dress and a car made from seeds have in common, Anthony Brandt and David Eagleman have an answer for you. And that's it for Smarty Pants. We are not taking a break for the holidays this season, so we will be back next week with a new spin on the history of Rome and how it may have been the first empire to fall from climate change. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.